0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you have your bulletin in front of you, you'll have a brief glimpse of who I am, uh, and uh, you might want to just take a look at that. I won't, I won't bore you with the details, but I will say how thankful I am to God, most certainly, for having brought both Shirley and me to Hebron Church several years ago, and this is the place that we choose as our home church, and we worship here as often as we can, and so I'm very thankful to be here, and thankful especially to be here today that I've been given the opportunity to fill Henry's pulpit and to encourage you with the Word of God. So let me begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Lord, I pray that you would be pleased with the message my words convey to the flock here at Hebron. Open their hearts and their minds to receive what I have to share so that they'll be encouraged. And above all, keep me from error in proclaiming what you have by the power of your Holy Spirit revealed for me to share here today. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's my belief that many texts in the New Testament convey deeper truths than what would seem apparent on the surface. And so I call these truths gospel foreshadowings because I think they reveal the gospel concerning Jesus in a deeper and more profound way. And one such text in the New Testament is the account of the wedding at Cana found in the gospel of John beginning in chapter two. Now before I read the text, I think it's important to set the stage for you so that you'll have a better idea of what I am going to share. This book, this gospel, according to most biblical scholars, is divided up into three sections. The first is the introduction. It's all in chapter 1. It's a marvelous introduction, uh, certainly inspired. We, we love to read it. It's very profound. The second, starting in chapter 2, the second section uh, starts in 2 and runs through chapter 12, verse 22, is often called the book of signs. The book of signs. And the third, which runs from chapter 12, verse 23, the very next verse, to the end of the gospel is often called the book of glory. Now, we could say that the main theme of the book of signs is found in Jesus' own words that he shares in chapter 2, verse 4b, when he says, my hour has not yet Likewise, the theme of the Book of Glory, that third section found at the end of the book, from the middle to the end of the book, rests in Jesus' saying in chapter 12 and verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So, in a practical sense, we could say that the Book of Signs tells a story of how Jesus goes public and the Book of Glory explains just exactly how he's glorified by going to the cross. So as you know, signs are meant to point to something else, right, we don't read a sign for the sake of understanding just the sign, we read the sign because typically it points to something else, and so the book of signs, that first, that second section from chapter two to chapter 12, uh, has seven different signs in it that the Apostle John wants to share with us. The first, of course, occurs here at the wedding of Cana when Jesus changes water into wine. That's a sign. It's followed by His cleansing of the temple, and then by the healing of the nobleman's son, and then healing of the lame man, and then by feeding the multitude, then healing the blind man, and finally, by the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Each of these signs is a demonstration of Jesus's divine power, which in turn reveals his glory. And as a result, from the first sign through the seventh sign, all of these resulted in people believing In Jesus. So let's take a look at this account of the first sign by reading our text together, found in John's Gospel, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 1. I'd ask you to please stand if you're able as we give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. John chapter 2, verse 1. The first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is the word of God. Thank you. You may be seated. So I think most of us would agree that in terms of celebrations there are none that quite compare to that of a wedding and a wedding reception. The guests are all dressed to the nines, there's food, there's music, there's speeches, there's dancing, and sometimes there's the serving of alcoholic beverages. Many of us who have had the privilege of officiating at Christian weddings will often mention how Jesus adorns the institution of holy matrimony. And we get that from this very text that he, being at this wedding, adorned it with his presence. And so his presence at the wedding of Cana lifts it, in a sense, to a higher level. We're told his mother was also present, and because she had some influence over the servants, we can surmise that she was likely helping the bridegroom ensure the success of the wedding celebration. And in the midst of this celebration, the wine runs out. Now, to run out of wine on such a joyous occasion would have brought shame upon the bridegroom and all those assisting. And realizing the entire celebration was about to become a disaster, we hear Mary say to her son, Perhaps with a tinge of impatience, maybe even frustration, but more, I think, out of a sense of expectation, they have no wine. So why would Mary go to Jesus? Why would she go to her son? It's not that this was a bring your own boo celebration, it's a lot like Jesus came packing a donkey load full of good wine to bring to the celebration. Uh, Maybe she thought that he was going to send the servants out into the neighborhood to find wine. Why would she ask him? Well, I think in, in many regards, she knew something that no one else knew of Jesus. She had a unique insight as to who her son was. And it goes back to a very early age when she was visited by the angel Gabriel. We see an account in the Gospel of Luke where Gabriel says to her in the opening chapter, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Certainly this announcement from the angel lodged in Mary's heart throughout her entire life. And so I think it's safe to conclude that in her approaching Jesus, Mary was expecting him to take control of the situation. Do something. Do something. This is in your genes. You need to do something. This is what Gabriel said you would help us with. So Jesus responds with the simple word woman. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled over why Jesus addresses his mother as woman. And we're not going to go into the details. But the truth is is that this was a perfectly acceptable way of addressing Mary within this cultural context. And so I want to continue by looking at the remainder of what Jesus says. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So what is this hour of which Jesus speaks? It's not an hour consisting of 60 minutes, but it's the hour that God has ordained for Jesus, marking out that period in which Jesus will finally undergo a betrayal, a trial a scourging a crucifixion a burial a resurrection and praise God then an ascension again we only need to fast forward to John 12:23 where the book of glory begins with Jesus saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and were you to read all of those chapters to the end of the Gospel of John, this is the story that would unfold. But early in his ministry, Jesus didn't want to go public. Many say this is called his messianic secret. He wanted to keep his ministry, his divinity, a secret. The time had not yet come for him to be fully revealed. He did not want to to show his true identity to the masses. Yet now, in this first situation, when he is in a position to do something in public by God's providence. Jesus is about to give a select few people at that wedding a glimpse of something that would demonstrate his own divinity. As the account continues, of course, we hear Mary saying to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, she has some degree of authority over these servants, and so by giving them her permission to follow Jesus' lead, They'd be open then to taking instructions from a guest that they don't know and even might do things that at first glance seem somewhat ridiculous. But no one, and I repeat, no one, not even Mary or the servants, could have imagined how Jesus would act. There was no abracadabra. There was no mumbo-jumbo, no hocus-pocus, no sleight of hand, none of these kinds of things. There were only two simple commands given to the servants. Now, let's go back a little bit in this text and look at another another thing that that weighs in on our discussion, and that comes to us in verse 6 where we're told that there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, to be clear, one such jar would have been sufficient to support a typical household, one jar. And so when guests would arrive at that household, a house servant would, would dip water out of a jar with a ladle or a pitcher and pour it over the hands of the guests in order that they might ritually purify their hands. This house, by contrast, has six jars. Six jars, each holding between 20 and 30 gallons for a total of between 120 and 180 gallons of water, enough to ritually purify literally hundreds of people. So this gives us an indication, number one, of how large this celebration was and the kind of house it was being celebrated in. Now, it was the practice, of course, that the best wine was served first, but now they'd run out of it, and so we can assume that since they'd run out of the best wine, most of the house guests had arrived, most of the guests had ritually purified themselves with the water from these jars, and so Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. Fill the jars with water. We can assume that they're almost empty, in fact. Maybe maybe half empty, all of them. Fill the jars with water. The servants do so. He then goes to them and says, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Now, you might have noticed in our text that as I read it, If you have a Bible open, you would see it clearly that in brackets in this text, John makes a parenthetical comment that the servants who had drawn the water knew that it was now wine. No one else did except Jesus. Isn't it amazing? I think it's amazing that these lowly house servants were the first to witness this miraculous demonstration of the divinity of Jesus. All the water in these jars had been turned to wine. And so when the master had tasted it, he acknowledged that this wine brought by the servants was not the standard second-rate watered down cheap wine normally served later on during the celebration when people were less particular. This wine was of the finest quality. And so surprised was he at that fact, he went directly to the bridegroom and credited him for doing something truly unconventional by serving the best wine last. Imagine, if you will, even more, the surprise of the bridegroom when he was complimented on something that he himself had had no part in arranging he must have been truly astonished. How did this happen? Now while the good wine had been served at the beginning of the banquet, this wine of heavenly quality, I might say, was served at the end. But not only that, there was 120 to 180 gallons of this wine. How could any group possibly drink it all? Its abundance was extraordinary." So here then is the first sign meant to point to the divinity of Jesus. By turning water into wine, Jesus demonstrates his power to create something in an instant that would have taken months and many grapes to accomplish by human hands. What an amazing miracle. What an amazing sign. And what an amazing God. So now let me summarize by sharing with you four separate instances of what I feel are gospel foreshadowings in this text. First, let me just talk about the setting of this miracle, namely a wedding. Christ is often referred to in scripture as the bridegroom and the church as the bride of Christ. And so the imagery of marriage and celebration points us forward to a future marriage at the end of the age, namely that which is shared with us in the book of Revelation, verse chapter 17, verses 7 and 9, where we read, The marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This wedding at Cana definitely points, I think, foreshadows an even greater wedding supper to be held at the end of the age. Attendance at that particular banquet is by invitation only. And we know that our preparation, the preparation of the church of Jesus Christ, the preparation of the bride has occurred through the work of Jesus and Jesus alone upon the cross of Calvary. Truly, All who know and love Jesus will be filled with joy as they sit at that table at the end of the age, supping with their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's the first foreshadowing. Now in your bulletin, uh, you may have noted that I had a secondary reading that uh, I'd like to share with you, and it comes from the book of Exodus. Exodus. Chapter 7, beginning with verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far, you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile shall stink and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals and their ponds and all their pools of water so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Do you think it's just coincidental that this first miracle of Jesus as he begins to go public has to do with changing water into something else? You think it's just coincidental? No, I don't think it is at all. I think John really brings this sign to the front, shows us this because he wants us to see, in fact, the relationship between the God that brought this plague upon his own enemies by turning the Nile into blood is, is the same God, Jesus, who turns water into wine. That's the second foreshadowing, I believe, that's in this text. What's the third one? It has, again, to do with the vanquishing of God's enemies. It's found in Genesis 49, 11. This is the place where Jacob is pronouncing a blessing upon all of his sons. And this particular section has to do with his blessing upon his son Judah. It contains a prophecy... A very complex prophecy, I might add, but one that speaks about how the Messiah, when he comes, will vanquish the enemies of God. So in verse 11, Jacob says that there will be one of his descendants, namely the Messiah, who has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. This is the one reference in the Old Testament that speaks of wine as being the blood of grapes. By changing water into wine or into the blood of grapes, Jesus is again foreshadowing his role in vanquishing God's enemies, again, Again, foreshadowing his role. And this brings me to my fourth and final example of gospel foreshadowing here in this account. The 120 to 180 gallons of water present in those six jugs at the outset of the account served only to ritually purify a person. But now, the blood of the grape, uh, namely the wine that now occupied these six stone jugs, foreshadows the infinite supply of blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins as the ultimate agent of cleansing and purification for sinners such as you and I. There's more than enough, far more, far more that is needed. To accomplish his task, we know from the other three gospel accounts that Jesus would at the Last Supper raise his wine filled cup and say to his disciples, This cup is the new covenant in wine? No, in my blood. Thus, there's a direct and very deeply symbolic link between the blood of Christ, which was shed for the remission of sins, and the cup holding that wine that was present at the sacrament thus i feel the miracle jesus performed at the wedding at cana clearly foreshadows everything that jesus was about to do particularly with regard to the shedding of his own precious blood the blood of christ alone is that which god requires in order for our sins to be forgiven The blood of Christ alone is the instrument of salvation. The blood of Christ alone is that which washes us clean. Like the old hymn says, what can wash my sins away? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Oh precious is the flow that makes me white as snow No other fountain know Nothing but the blood of Jesus Amen